0: So, as Mrs. Monk just said, this is a relationship-based school. And that's a, that's a big concept. Um, I've been speaking a lot lately with parents, about parenting. And the reason for that focus has been If I can be cynical for a moment, I started getting a little uh, battle-weary with trying to deal with institutions. I said, listen, parents have to care. At least parents have to care. But uh, from time to time, there are those schools that really do also care. And understand why it's so important to care. And very happy to be here with kindred spirits, with people who understand, if I could say it as just a one-liner, I think it's actually Teddy Roosevelt's line, but uh, he said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So you can be the smartest person in the world, you can be an expert in your subject, but nobody can learn from you if they don't feel connected. So that's what I I want to talk about tonight, about this need for connection. And uh, not just in the home with parents and children, which obviously, that goes without saying how important that is, but also the school as a second home as a place that supplements that connection and that relationship. So I want to talk a little bit about the parent-child relationship, but also about the teacher-student relationship, more so the teacher-student relationship, because after all, this is a, this is a school. So I'll tell you a story about a teacher. Um, in fact, it's a story about two teachers. And it's a story about two teachers and three students. Um, the two teachers were, were uh, Shammai and Hillel. And three students came to each of them, both of them. Uh, and they, they had three similar stories. The, the second of the three stories is probably the most famous one. People have probably heard the story about the pers- prospective convert who came to Shammai. And he said, teach me the entire Torah, teach me all of Judaism in the amount of time that it takes me while I can stand on one foot. And Shammai told him that's preposterous, and he chased him off. And then uh, the same guy went to Hillel and Hillel told him, basically, whatever you don't like, don't do it to anyone else. That's the gist of the whole Torah. And, you know, go learn the rest and it'll fall into place, basically, more or less. That was the second story. There were actually three stories. This is all if you want to look it up, this is the Gomorrah, Shabbos, Dafla, Amid Aleph, Ahmed Aleph and Ahmed Base. So uh, it tells three stories. The first guy was also a prospective convert. And he went to Shammai and he asked him a question. And, and clearly he was, in 2022, we would call it trolling. Because like he, he knew what he was asking. He said, how many Torahs do you have? and I think he expected he knew that there was a concept of the written law and the oral law so Shammai said we have two we have the the written and we have the oral and uh, so this prospective convert tells Shammai well I only want to learn the written torah so Shammai told him that's impossible Uh, we're not going to do that and he chased him off so this same guy He goes to Hillel, and he asked him the same setup, the same question, and made the same request. Could you just teach me the written law? And it says that Hillel told him, not only told him, yeah, but he converted him. And he, on those terms, and he started studying with him the written law, meaning Teresh Started with Chumash, started with Bereshus <laughs> with, Bereshis, with the, the first verse of Genesis. Bereshis, bara Elikim, Esh, Shmai, Vets, how do you read it? Okay, so he gave him Hebrew lessons. Aleph base, this is an Aleph, this is a base, this is a Gimel, this is a Dali. taught him how to read. So uh, that was day one of class. And the next day, the guy came back and Hillel said, Let, let's, let's review the, the alphabet. And he mixed it up on him. So he told, that what he told him yesterday was an aleph, he told him it was a tuf, And that what he told him was a base, he told him that it was a, a shin. You know, switched every, the first letter became the last letter. The last letter became the first letter. He flipped the whole olive base, the whole alphabet on him. So the guy says, hold on a second. That, that, that's, that's not what you taught me yesterday so hill says well how do you know what i taught you yesterday was true he said i was trusting you so he says exactly and just like you trusted me to teach you what is an aleph and what is a base so that you could read please trust me when i tell you that the only meaningful way to extract any direction from this document is by accepting the oral tradition along with it as well. That was the first story. And then the story, the second guy was about uh, teach me the whole Torah standing on one foot. So, uh, and then there was a third guy, but, but before we get into that, maybe we won't even get into the third guy, but let, let, me, let me talk you about the first guy. So I understand the difference between Shammai and Hillel, is that Shammai told the guy, I can't do it. He rejected the whole request. And that Hillel accepted it. He worked with the guy. But let me ask you something that to me is a more interesting question. Which is, I understand that Hillel worked with the guy. But why did he work with the guy in the way that he worked with him? In other words, pretend you don't know this story. Pretend you heard that this happened... I don't know, somewhere on a college campus, and there's an outreach rabbi, and uh, some student came in and said, well, I, I, believe in the, uh, I believe in a certain sanctity of the Bible, but I reject the oral tradition. So what would you expect the rabbi's response to be? Probably, you would try to explain it to the guy. You would have some compelling proofs You explain to him how the document can't function. Divorced from an oral tradition. Maybe you give him a few instances where the written meaning on its own is is completely indecipherable without some type of supporting commentary. You'd prove it to him. In other words, you'd prove to him intellectually this is is a logical conclusion that you have to accept the fact there's also an oral tradition. And that's not what Hillel did. What did Hillel do? First of all, he accepted the guy. Not only accepted him, he made him Jewish. That's a whole question, by the way, the commentaries ask. How was he even able to do that on that premise? But we won't get into that whole discussion. He accepted the guy. He started learning with him on his terms. He taught him what he was ready to accept. And then after he had established, meaning Hillel had established himself as a trustworthy source of information based on shared experiences, a relationship, interactions, then Hillel said, don't you trust me? I'm the guy who taught you how to read. You can trust me when I tell you there's an oral tradition. In other words, Hillel did not try to make a winning argument Hill built a relationship and said, based on the fact, you know me, you can trust me. I think it's interesting because a lot of times we think that we can debate our way into convincing somebody to believe in something that they don't want to believe in. As if the rules, the unwritten rules are, if I win the debate, then fair and square, you have to agree with me. But we know that (laughs) that's not how it works in real life. You can win the debate and people still walk away saying, yeah, but I don't agree. But if you can establish a relationship, if you can win somebody's trust, if you can get them to know that you as a person are reliable, it's almost automatic. You don't even have to convince them. You just have to tell them, trust me. It's, inc- it's incredibly powerful. And I think we seem to overlook it because when we're teaching... We become so focused on the idea of the transmission of information that we think that information is, is, is transmitted effectively based on its own merit, and it's not true. That's not how human, how human beings work. Maybe that's how an artificial intelligence works. But that's not how human beings work. Human beings do not accept arguments based on the logical strength of the argument. Did you ever see anybody in today's political climate, be convinced to completely change their political views from one extreme to the other extreme because of a Facebook discussion? No, blocked. That's it. We're not talking ever again. Why? Because it's tribalism. These are my people. These are who I'm comfortable with. This is who I identify with, and that's it. And the the debate is already won or lost based on whoever I feel I'm connected to. That's it. That's it. So we would like, I would like, I would love it if the rules of reality were that if I make a compelling argument, then fair and square, you have to believe me because my argument was logical. But that's not the reality. That's not how anyone works people respond to unconvincing arguments made by people they trust more than they respond to convincing arguments made by people that they don't trust. So I um, I had this clip that was posted on social media. And I spoke about parenting and I said the most important thing that parents can do is have a relationship with their child because if you don't have a relationship with your child and by relationship, I guess I should define what that means That um, I think I gave an example, I said I once heard somebody say when my kid grows up and gets in trouble I don't want her to say, oh no, my dad's going to kill me I want her to say, oh no, I better call my dad Right, When a parent establishes himself or herself as the go-to person, as the safe person. that When my kid's in trouble, they come to me. They don't run from me. They don't hide from me. They come to me. Right? So I was speaking about that and saying how really, especially today, it's a big, wide-open world. People have options. They can go online. They can discover billions of people who will validate them. So today, it's so important. It's always been important, but so much more so to establish yourself. I'm talking about parents, especially, to establish yourself as trustworthy, as safe. And then it's almost automatic that you can transmit your values because once your child identifies with you, then almost unconsciously, they will want to be like you or emulate you. Um, But if they don't trust you, they don't like you. and They don't think you like them. They don't think you're safe. So then the best you can hope for is maybe behavioral compliance. Which means, if I catch you, I'll reward you or punish you. But it doesn't mean I've actually successfully transmitted my values to you, that that becomes your moral compass, so that you'll make the decision that I'd want you to make when nobody's looking. right? So anyways, I, 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 there was a clip like that. I mean, The clip was much better than how I said. <laughs> the clip was 30 seconds, and it was rocking and rolling but okay I I succeeded in making my own clip boring at any rate (laughs) so it was posted and and somebody wrote a comment there Uh, a psychologist wrote a comment and uh, she wrote this is the role of epistemic trust okay so I'll tell you, what, what is epistemic trust? So I kind of could figure out what it meant because I have heard of the word epistemology, which is, I think, a branch of philosophy, which is studying the nature of knowledge. How do we know things to be verifiable? How do you know that something's true? So I was trying to figure out, like, what is epistemic trust? I guess that means trusting that somebody, what they're telling you is true. Anyways, the first thing I did, it's interesting, just analyzing my own psychology, is I saw how many followers this lady, this psychologist who made this comment, I saw how many followers she has on Instagram. And she had like 100,000 followers. I was like, okay, maybe she's got a point. Interesting, right? <laughs> I was, you see, I, I, I know exactly what's happening here and I couldn't break free from it. I didn't. Immediately analyze the argument based on its own merit. At first, I wanted to see how many other people think this is a normal person? Oh, 100,000 followers? Okay. All right. Maybe maybe there's something there. Okay. So then I started Googling around. By the way, this is how I get this reputation of having secular training and background. Like, I, I actually don't. I'll tell you a trick, by the way. Everyone supposes, they, people ask me questions about like new modalities of therapy and stuff, and I have zero clue. I'm a rabbi. That's, I really I don't know any of that. So I really don't know. and People don't even believe me when I tell I don't know. No, but of course you, I don't know. There is a trick, by the way. If I want to know a, a, a secular idea, I'll find out the book that was written in the past 10, 20 years on that topic. I won't read it because I don't have time for that. I'll find the TED Talk of the person who wrote the book, watch the first five minutes of it on double speed, and in two and a half minutes, I promise you, you will sound really intelligent. As long as nobody presses you for more information, you'll sound really good. That's what I do. Anyways, so I, here's my two and a half minute self-taught uh, understanding of epistemic trust. Apparently, th- there's an idea, and, I, and that from what I understand, it has to do... Um, the reason that people are discussing me today is in the context of trauma. That somebody who is traumatized will lose their epistemic trust and they'll become the opposite. It's called epistemic vigilance or maybe even epistemic hypervigilance. I can't trust people. You can't trust people. People are not trustworthy. right? And that's obviously a Survival mechanism, which is a response to having been betrayed by people who you should have been able to trust, especially like a child should have been able to trust a parent. And when you can't, then that's a major violation of trust and security. And then you become epistemically hypervigilant. Okay. But epistemic trust means that I believe somebody when they speak. When somebody talks to me, I believe them. That's epistemic trust. So this lady with hundred thousand followers, she posts on, uh, or she comments on my clip, this is what it means, epistemic trust. So I did my little two and a half minute research and then it hit me and I posted and I responded. I said, now I understand what the Kuzari means. When he said, I don't know if she understood what that was, but what the Kuzari means. When he said that uh, Anoichi is the first commandment Everyone understands what I mean? Of course This is actually a machlekas Of the Kuzari Together with the Ramban Against the Rambam Do I have enough epistemic trust from you that you'll let me talk about this for two minutes? Yeah? Okay Okay, so The Rambam Maimonides says that the meaning of the first commandment, the first of the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God, is the commandment to believe that all existence originates from Hashem's absolute existence. That all existence as we know it is created and therefore conditional or contingent existence. And it all comes from and is dependent upon Hashem's unconditional existence or absolute existence. And that that is the first commandment and that is the meaning of I am the Lord your God. The Kuzari, who actually came uh, before the Rambam, says, no it's not, That's not what it means. It means exactly what the sentence says. Read the whole sentence. I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt from the house of bondage. It's a very literal introduction. Hey, I'm about to give you a bunch of information. A lot of that information has practical implications that will interfere with your life. Okay, Commandments means I'm going to be telling you to do some stuff. 365 prohibitions, 248 positive commandments. So before I give you all this information and all of these rules... I just want to introduce or reintroduce myself, as it were. Remember me? Remember that Egypt thing? Remember? Yeah, that was me. I am the Lord your God, who took you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Because if we don't have a context, then where am I coming from out of the blue and dumping all these rules and ideas on your head? The first thing, this is what Kuzari says, the first thing I have to do Meaning Hashem, is to introduce or reintroduce myself. I'm the Lord your God who had an involvement in your life. You were in trouble. I got you out of there. And now, based on that relationship, I would like to tell you a few things. Now, that I'm ban, I still have your epistemic trust. That I'm not going to bore you. Okay. So, that I'm ban, Nachmanides. He came after the Rambam. And he takes the Kuzari side. He says, yeah, that's right, that's true. What the Kuzari says. Um, I am the Lord your God means Hashem is establishing based on the experience, the personal experience of those who were removed from Egypt. Hashem has now a context within which to give us commandments. And then the Ramban actually cites a proof to support his argument from the Michilta, which is a medrash, where it says a parable about a king who entered a land. And uh, the people of the land saw this king and they asked him, oh, you're the king, tell us your laws. And in the parable the king tells the people no 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 that's that's not how we do it first tell me whether or not you want me to be king accept my sovereignty and then we'll talk about whether or not you want to accept my laws and by the way what is what is that madras talking about it's actually you know what it is hmm? It's, it, well it's definitely related to it but it's actually in context it's speaking about Rosh Hashanah about the new year what happens on the new year we accept Hashem's sovereignty so Teshuvah you want to clean up anything that might have gone wrong in the relationship where he told you to do this and instead you did that That will do after Rosh Hashanah. That's why we have days of Teshuvah leading up to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But we don't do that first. First, we just make a decision in or out. Are you in this relationship? First, accept me. Tell me you want to be in this relationship. And then we can talk about the terms, what you want, what I want, what went wrong, what could be better. But we don't do it reverse. We don't say, tell me your rules, and then I'll decide whether or not I want to have a relationship with you, because that's not how it works. You say, decide if you want me. Do you care about me? Do you want a relationship with me? And then we can talk about the terms. So let's put this into, let's put this into context of a, uh, a teacher. Sometimes we think that we're going to win people over by giving a good lesson. We know our subject matter. We prepared it well. We have a good lesson plan. We explain it well. And uh, based on that, people should listen to us. And not only listen, they should retain it. They should care about it enough to to remember what we said. And again, I told you, I I wish this were how it was. I wish this were the way people worked. It would make life easier. But in reality, we know that it works exactly the opposite. When you've established that there's a relationship, when you've established that you care about a student as a person, when there's some level of empathy, when there's some level of personal connection, then, even if you're not that eloquent, somehow, what you say manages to sink in. You know why that is? Because people don't care about truth, they care about relevancy. People aren't looking for truth. Truth's a nice bonus, I guess. But what they really want is relevancy. Why does this matter to me? And do you even know who I am? Do you understand my life? The words you're saying here, are they different? than if you were speaking to somebody else or this is just your speech that you give to everybody. People want relevancy. You know, there was a a guy in a hot air balloon. He didn't have any navigational tools and he got lost. And he was trying to figure out where he was. So uh, he looked down on the ground and he saw way below him, there was a guy standing outside in a big field. So the guy in the hot air balloon yells down below. He says, You there, down below. The guy on the ground looks up, Yeah. The guy in the hot air balloon says, Listen, I'm trying to figure out something. Do you know where I am? The guy on the ground says, Yeah, you're in a hot air balloon. <laughs> I know that I'm in a hot air, balloon. he says, no, 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 I mean my location. My location, like in relationship to the earth. Where am I? The guy on the ground says, you're about 100 meters off the ground. Right. I can see that for myself, he thinks. Yeah. He says, yeah, thank you. I, I, I'm, I'm, trying to get, I'm trying to get my location. Like, where am I? So The guy says, you're over my house. The guy realizes, this this, this is not going anywhere. So The guy in the hot air balloon says to the guy below, he says, can I ask you a question, sir? He says, yeah, are you a rabbi? The guy on the ground says, yeah, I am actually. I am a rabbi by profession. How did you know I'm a rabbi? So the guy in the hot air balloon says, because from the minute that I met you, everything you've told me has been 100% true, but totally irrelevant to my situation. You don't score points for being true, for saying the truth. People would rather accept something from somebody who they think cares about them than to accept the truth from somebody who they think does not understand them, doesn't understand their life, doesn't understand how they spend their time doesn't understand what keeps them up at night. You don't know what hurts me. You don't know my story. You don't know my pain. So how can I trust you that anything you say is relevant to me? There's a story that... um, Parshas Kisave, which is always right before Rosh Hashanah. We read uh, the curses. There are two Torah portions in the year that have curses in them. And this is one of them. One has 49 curses, the other has 98, the double, double uh, 49. So Kisave has the double, has 98 curses. So um, the story is that the Balatanya, the first Chabad Rebbe, was the Baal He used to actually be the reader of the, the Torah reading in, in Shul. And he was a big Baal He knew a lot of grammar. He, had, he was very precise in his reading, which is besides the point. Uh, but he, he used to be the the Balkader. He used to read the, the Torah portion. At any rate, there was one time when he was traveling. He wasn't... He wasn't in his hometown and so that Shabbos they had another reader, they had another reader and the Balatanya had a son, he had a few sons, he had three sons but one of them who was his eventual successor, Rabdeivber, who they called the Mittler Rebbe, he was a child at the time and he fainted in the middle of Kriya and When they were reading the public Torah reading, he fainted, the child fainted. So, after they finally revived him, they asked him, why did he faint? And he said, because of the curses. Because the Torah reader was reading the portion and there were all these curses. They asked him, but this is a yearly affair. <laughs> this is a Torah portion. Every year, <laughs> we read this. You've heard this before. Like, why, why, is the first, why is this the first time you're fainting? So he said Because my father is usually the Torah reader and when my father reads you don't hear curses Now what, what does that mean? Open up any chumash. Read that text. You'll read those words. At least on the literal. Of course, there are deeper explanations according to Kabbalah. But I'm saying on the face of it, the literal translation, these are scary things. So how is he saying, when my father reads, you don't hear curses? He's reading the same words. And surely the Mitle Rebbe understood at least the basic translation of those words. So what did he mean when my father reads, you don't hear curses? So I'll tell you what I think he meant. People ask me a lot. Um, I had a negative experience in Jewish schools. I'm trying, trying now as an adult to come back and to find my own way. And I'm wondering what material should I study where I'll be able to have a positive feeling about my Yiddishkeit? What should I study? You know how heartbreaking and frustrating that question is? Because I think you probably understand at least intuitively. I'll spell it out and then you'll tell me if this makes sense. I don't think the material that they need to study is necessarily so different than whatever material was already taught. It's not what words were written on the page that affected them the way that it affected them. And it's not different words on a different page that will be able to heal them and bring them back and give them a new way of reapproaching. Hashem, and and Torah, and, and Yiddishkeit, what makes it or breaks it, is the relationship. Who taught it to you? Who taught it to you? It's not the text, it's the teacher. And when you meet somebody, who you trust, not that you trust that they're smart, that's not what trust means. Because remember, people don't care about that. But you trust on an emotional level, this is a safe person. This person gets me. You know the test to find out if somebody gets you? Tell them something marginally personal and see their reaction. It's very quick to figure out if somebody gets you. And you know the feeling you have when you test the waters and you experience that disappointment once again, another person who doesn't get me. Just another person who doesn't understand where I'm coming from. And then if you're trapped in a situation where you're supposed to listen to that untrustworthy person speak to you for an entire year, and you're being evaluated on your ability to retain information transmitted to you by someone you find untrustworthy, that's a really unfun situation to be in. As opposed to Let's frame it in a a positive, affirmative way, how delightful and how pleasurable it is when you find yourself in a classroom with a teacher who you trust on an emotional level. You think that they're safe, you think they understand you, you you think that they get you, and you don't even have to work hard to remember what they told you. So I, I think, and, and, and I'm just guessing here. I'm just guessing, based on my own experiences as an educator, that a lot of times when we feel on our end as, as the teacher that maybe things are not successfully being transmitted, I think sometimes what we do our reflex is we stop and we think to ourselves, okay, hold on a second. What can I say to make this more clear? Like, <laughs> how can I present this information more compellingly? Well, like, maybe, maybe I should draw an outline on, on the board. Maybe I need better proofs. What didn't you understand? You didn't understand? Tell me what you didn't understand. Okay, I'll tell you again. I'll, I'll say it more slowly. And the reality is that that wasn't the impediment. The reality is that something that totally shouldn't matter is the make it or break it factor. Something as seemingly irrelevant to teaching as saying to a kid, oh, you look tired. And not saying it in an accusatory way. Not in a, like, underhanded way. Oh, you look tired. Are you okay? Did you get enough sleep last night? Everything is okay? Or, I saw you come back from lunch late. Were you able to eat? Did you eat? Do you need more time? Something like that really shouldn't have anything to do with your ability to successfully transmit information. And yet, it has everything to do with your ability to successfully transmit information. What do you think it means? Dead ahead, it's called I mean, it means a lot of things. But can I share with you one possible meaning? it's called Kodmula taira means being a mensch, behaving yourself nicely with others, takes precedence even over the religious teachings of taira. right? That's the simple meaning that we're used to, right? Let me suggest to you that it might also mean, it's not a contradiction, that derech eretz, meaning having a rapport, a genuine rapport, not fake. Where you establish with somebody that you care about them as a person, not, not as, a, as a student who you're, trying to, who you're judging based on their ability to retain information, but somebody who you genuinely care about them and their welfare and their, their well-being. That derech that, eretz, that is the prerequisite because you can't teach them toida if they don't think you're the person who cares about them. So what did Hillel do that was so successful? He took these people, and by the way, I didn't even tell you the third story about the third guy. He was was the zaniest of them all. You know the third guy? I'll tell you the third guy. He, again, a prospective convert. He was not Jewish. He walked by a Jewish school one day, and he heard them studying about the big day Kohuna, about the vestments, the clothing that the, the high priest wore in the holy temple. And they sounded pretty cool. The clothing sounded pretty cool. So he came in and he asked the class, who wears these clothes? And they said, the high priest. He says, well, I got to gotta, I gotta become one of those. So he came to Shammai. He went to Shammai first. And he said, I want to become Jewish so I can be a high priest. And Shammai told him, that's preposterous. Like, you know, get out of here. And he came to Hillel. This is the third guy. The first guy told you, he said, I want to know only the written Torah without the oral Torah. The second guy was the one "Tell me the whole Torah on one foot. This is the third guy. He said, make me Jewish so that I can become a high priest and wear those cool clothes. says, Hillel converted him. And he started studying with him he said we got to study we got to learn and they came to uh the part that says that a non-kohen who approaches the service that is designated only for a kohen will be harshly punished with the opposite of life so this he wasn't a prospective convert anymore he, he was jewish already at this point he says to hillel who's this talking about who's, who's going to be punished who's going to be put to death if uh i mean at the hands of heaven it's not a court administered uh, capital punishment but who's going to be put to death for uh for acting like a, a high priest and Hillel said why even david king of israel who was by the way hillel's ancestor hillel was from the davidic house he was a descendant of king david he said even even David Melech King David. Because he's, he's, not, he's not a coin. He's not descended from Aaron So the guy said, really? Even King David is not allowed to do it? And he says to Hillel, this is, I mean, I, I laughed out loud when I went to this Gemara the first time. He says, so if even King David can't do it, there's no way I could do it. <laughs> and Hillel's like, Probably right, yeah. (laughs) The guy figured it out. And not only he figured it out, he was okay with it. He accepted it. Now His entire conversion was based on this aspiration to wear those cool clothes. And now he finds out it's not possible. It's never going to happen. But he was okay with it. Because hell chose instead of chasing him away and telling him how ridiculous his premise was and judging him, Hillel said, okay, you want, to, you want to start learning with me? Let's, let's learn. I accept you. You're my brother now. I'm making you Jewish, bringing you into the fold. So after this happened, I don't know how much longer, in the Gemara, it's never clear, like, what the chronology was. It could have been like a day later. It could have been like 50 years later. But it says at some point after that story happened, all three of these guys met up. Where did they meet up? I have no idea. But all three of these guys met up. And I have no idea if like they knew each other before in real life or if like one day they were just like standing in line at the grocery store and they started playing Jewish geography and they're like, oh, you know Hillel also? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hillel converted you too. Okay. Yeah. I don't know how it happened, but all three of these guys got together and they realized they had similar stories. And the Gemara says that they said, um, Shammai pushed us away and Hillel with his humility brought us under the wings of the divine presence. Doesn't say that Hillel was a better teacher or he was smarter or more eloquent than Shammai. It says he was humble. In plain English, we call that relatable, approachable. Who's approachable? In fact, even if you approached him in an absurd way with some crazy kakamimi idea like, converting to become a high priest. He wasn't gonna shame you, he wasn't gonna judge you, he wasn't gonna use that as a deal breaker. He would work with you. And then eventually, in time, you would also learn whatever it is that you needed to learn. So just asking somebody And really caring what the answer is. How was your day? What's going on? Everything okay at home? Um, Did you have fun at recess? How was lunch? What did you do on your break? That's not just small talk that actually is what makes it possible for people to learn from you. And if we don't do that, or if, God forbid, we even do the opposite and betray their trust by judging or rejecting, so then what do you want? How how are they supposed to learn? They're not machines. You can just feed information into them. They're human beings. And human beings learn based on relationships. And no one is exempt from that ironclad rule of the universe, even God Almighty Himself. God could have just said, here's the Torah, evaluate it on its own merits. This is infinite wisdom. I think you'll be impressed. That's not what he did. He introduced himself and said, Hey, we've got a thing going on. I took you out of Egypt. I chose you. I brought you close to me. I made you mine. Now I'd like to teach you a few things. tell you two more stories. They're related. One's a modern story. The other is an old Hasidic tale. The modern story is that there was a university where there was a cocktail party for uh, faculty. And there was a, uh, a lecturer who was known. He was sort of like a celebrity professor. He, he was published. And a lot, of his, a lot of his books had become popular. Uh bestsellers and he was uh, he was known he was known uh, as a sort of like a a celebrity on campus and at this party there was uh, an artist and the professor told the artist he said you know I envy you because my medium is the lecture and yes, of course, I write books afterwards, but that's really not my medium. My medium where I really shine is, is the lecture, and it's a very uh, temporal, because even if you record it, it's not the same. The lecture is really an experience, and it, and it goes for the hour, or an hour and a half that it, that it takes place, and then that's it, and it's, it's, sort of, it's sort of gone. He says, but you, the professor said to the artist, um, your works of art sit in a museum or in a gallery and people can continue to appreciate them. So I envy you. So the artist said to the professor, if that's what you think your medium is, then I'm very happy to hear how frustrated and disappointed you are because you deserve it because you don't understand at all that neither a professor or an artist is working in lecturing or in painting that's not the medium that's not the medium any more than the paintbrush or the notepad where you write your notes for your lecture The actual medium is the human being with their own mind and their own heart who absorbs the message and is changed based on what you expressed. You had something inside of you that no one else knew, and you put it out there, whether it was through a lecture or through a painting, and now somebody else sees it, and they are changed. He says, my masterpiece is, is, is not a painting. My masterpiece are the people who are affected by seeing something that I had inside of me and I put out there. And your masterpieces should be your students, not your lecture. Your lecture is just a, a means to an end for changing the life of a student. So that's a modern story. A Hasidic tale is, I mentioned earlier, the Balatanya he had a Chassid named Reb Shmuel Munkis and Shmuel Munkis was known as sort of a mischief maker. He was, uh, he was a scholar and he was very deep into prayer, into meditation, he was a mystic, but he also had like a sort of a, a silly side to him. Or maybe that was sort of his cover, how he remained humble. He would play the fool. At any rate, one time Shmuel Munkis was climbing up the front of the Balatanya's house, and he grabbed onto the windowsill and then he pulled up until he got his feet. He got his feet up on the windowsill and he sort of like latched his heels onto the windowsill and he was hanging upside down, swinging from the windowsill and people said to him, Shmuel, what are you doing? He said, what do you, th- what do you think I'm doing? I'm showing people that here is a rabbit. This is the house of a rabbit. He said, this is the house of a rabbit because some fool is swinging upside down from the sill. So he says, listen, <laughs> when you walk by the cobbler's shop, you know, the, the workshop where the the cobbler, the shoemaker makes shoes. There's a big giant shoe hanging out front so that you know that that's where a cobbler is. And uh, when you walk by the the barrel maker's shop, so there's a big giant barrel hanging over the door in front of the shop. You should know that's where they make barrels. And you walk by the the, 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 uh, the one who makes the horseshoe. So there's a, there's a big horseshoe hanging out front. How do you know who works? The thing that he produces, he has a big model of it. It's hanging out front. So what should be hanging in front of a Rebbe's house? A chassid. You hear that? Not a book. By the way, the Balatanya wrote the Tanya. That's why he called it the Tanya. Because he was the Balatanya. So he called his book the Tanya. That's my Version of humor, by the way. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Was it to Chabad the reference? I'll tell you the. the, I'll. I'll, No, I'll do do the joke right. You know why the Chofetz Chaim called his Sefer the Chofetz Chaim because he was the Chofetz Chaim, so he called his Sefer the Chofetz Chaim. Still not funny. Okay. (laughs) At any rate, no problem. All right. What. what should hang in front of a rabbi's house a hasid the accomplishment the magnum opus of the rabbi is not his forum not his teachings it's the human being that he touched it all begins and ends with relationships You can't teach anything to someone who doesn't feel that you care about them as a human being. And in the end, after all the teaching is said and done, what's the net result? That you've affected a human being. So it starts with caring about a human being, and it ends with caring about a human being. And somewhere in between, we try to teach them some information. Anyways, I hope everyone has a really amazing year connecting to their students and their students connecting to them and you should enjoy it. You should enjoy it. It's, uh, it's, as you know, there's nothing like a teacher. There's no one in the world, maybe a parent, okay. A parent and a teacher, there's nothing else in the world that has that much power in a person's life. So uh, I hope you enjoy it.